morning and welcome to Rising. I'm very excited about today's show and I'm very excited to have Brianna Joy Gray back with me today. Hello, Brianna. Always good to be back in the chair next to you, Robbie. So what's going on today? Well, first up, we have uh, Teslin Figaro and Ines Detman back with us. We'll discuss some new polling showing a dramatic shift among independent voters. Plus, we'll get into all the standout moments from last night's Florida governor's debate. But first, the Washington Post reports that a group of 30 Democratic lawmakers on Capitol Hill are now calling on President Biden to abandon strategy on the war in Ukraine and instead pursue direct negotiations with Russia. In a letter sent to the White House and obtained by the Post, the lawmakers write, quote, given the destruction created by this war for Ukraine and the world, as well as the risk of catastrophic escalation, we also believe it is in the interests of Ukraine, the United States, and the world to avoid a prolonged conflict. For this reason, we urge you to pair the military and economic support the United States has provided to Ukraine with a proactive diplomatic push, redoubling efforts to seek a realistic framework for a ceasefire. Led by Congressional Progressive Caucus Chairwoman Pramila Jayapal, other signers of the letter include Ilhan Omar, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, Cori Bush, Ro Khanna, and other progressives. Mm. So this was uh, this was pretty exciting. I mean, credit where credit's due. I read the letter. I agree with it. Um, it's you know, what I've been hoping. Um, uh, liberal uh, progressive Democrats who are not on board with a kind of hawkish foreign policy. I've been waiting for them to do something just like this. Um, some of their Republican counterparts have, in fact, signaled that they would like to, that, that there's not going to be a blank check. It's right. not going to be what the Biden administration has said, which is unlimited support no matter what, Forever. Yeah, so it's Kevin McCarthy who uh, told Punchbowl News uh, that, you know, I think people are going to be sitting in a recession and they're not going to write a blank check to Ukraine if, if Republicans uh, come into power. And I think that that's obviously true. They're reading the tea leaves in a way that Democrats absolutely are not. Mm -hmm. And what's in this letter is the lowest possible bar. Yeah. They're not saying pull back aid, pull back, um, you know, weapons, uh, sending weapons over there. All they're saying is, can you please pair the relief right. that we're sending to Ukraine with a diplomatic? push, which is contrary to what uh, we had learned about uh, the NATO's efforts to basically dis discourage right. any kind of direct negotiation with Russia earlier this year. Now, given how moderate that letter is, you would think it was a non-issue, a non-news story, a total blip, right? But, but no, <laughs> but no. But no, this is, this is from the, the founder of the Daily Kos, a, a liberal um, online magazine. He tweeted, this, by Rashida Tlaib, Ro Khanna, and other progressives, is unbelievably naive and stupid. Asking for diplomacy with a murderous terrorist regime literally raping and pillaging through, through Ukraine. Biden tried diplomacy to prevent the war. Only overwhelming force will now end it. That's, that's overwhelming force will not end it. It will not. I mean, overwhelming force. It would be nuclear force. Nuclear what are you force. talking about? That's, uh, that's the liberals for you right now. It's, uh, yeah. So, so in the there's a Washington Post article. It's a write up of this letter, mm -hmm. and then is you know checking in with other Democrats, administration spokespeople for how they feel about it. And yeah, those people are like no, hard no to this letter. We are giving the aid, and we are not. We are not gonna. They are advocating the U.S. should not have any kind of push on Ukraine to negotiate with Russia, and should not negotiate with Russia itself. We are giving unlimited aid, according to the Biden administration, until such time as Zelensky himself personally signals that it is time for there to be negotiations with Russia. That's crazy. It's just, that just doesn't make any sense. Crazy. It is. And yet, 
and yet here we are. <laughs> yeah. The letter represents the biggest challenge to President Biden's Ukraine strategy from within his own party, yet by no means are all Democratic lawmakers on board, as we just indicated. Uh, Senator Chris Murphy said there is moral and strategic peril in sitting down with Putin too early. It risks legitimizing his crimes, handing over parts of Ukraine to Russia in an agreement that Putin won't even honor. Sometimes a bully must be shown the limits of his power before diplomacy can work. And then a White House spokesperson told reporters yesterday, quote, we're not going to have conversations with the Russian leadership without the Ukrainians being present. Well, bring them, Adam, <laughs> bring everybody to the party. No, I'm not saying just include the Ukrainians. By all means, include them. But our, our, our money, our support does not have to be no strings attached. There's no like principle that says we must give Ukraine everything it wants without putting any stipulations on it. That, that's, that's insane. Yeah, every war ends via di diplomacy Absolutely. at some point. And to be asking for diplomacy just to be on the table and to get this kind of pushback from the wing of um, politics in this country historically that has been the anti-war party. You know, if you don't want people, I'm sorry, if, if you don't want people bringing up Tulsi Gabbard or bringing up conservatives as the vanguard of the anti-war movement in the United States because you think their positions have been inconsistent, then you have to have a position at all and not immediately uh, back down because, in fact, the response to this was uh, so striking that Congresswoman Jayapal released this clarifying statement on Twitter last night where she added, Diplomacy is an important tool that can save lives, but it is just one tool. As we also made explicitly clear in our letter and will continue to make clear, we support President Biden and his administration's commitment to nothing about Ukraine without Ukraine. I mean, if it was so clear in your initial statement, which it was, because it was the most even-tempered, reasonable, moderate statement in the world, you shouldn't need a clarifying statement. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you do really speaks to how off-kilter the, the anti-war movement is on the left. And I just don't understand this whole idea that, well, we, we can't let up the, the, the pain and the punishment we're visiting upon Russia. It's the Ukrainians who are doing that, and they are dying as well. Like, they, yes. they are suffering. It is not anti-Ukraine or, or inhumane toward Ukraine to want a push for diplomacy. Yes. Like, that, that should just be set aside. It's not that, in, in fact, it is in Ukraine's own interest, in the interest at least of the people who yes. are fighting and dying in this war and, and remember, to bring it to an end. Remember, in the spring, back in, in early early May, there was a reporting, I'm reading it out from an article in Common Dreams, that Boris Johnson pressured Zelensky to ditch peace talks with Russia. So there was a point in time where, obviously, Zelensky also right. felt like negotiations were of paramount right. importance. But this is the situation we're in now. We're, we are, I guess Boris Johnson gets that it's okay <laughs> to put some to put some work some leverage on Zelensky to get him yeah. to do what he wants. Yeah. That was just the wrong thing right. to do. Right. Where our interests are different than Ukraine's in some ways, and in so far as that, if we want to weaken Russia, if our right. goal is some ver version of regime change. Americans aren't the ones that are dying in the in the context mm -hmm. of this conflict. So what can look like aid that extends the conflict ultimately could just be extending the number, or growing rather, the number of lives lost and damage that's caused before an end that is unlikely to end without right. some concessions from both parties, because that's the nature of negotiation. I would also suggest that Pramila Jayapal and the other people who signed this letter uh, perhaps can read the tea leaves a little bit better than the Biden administration mm -hmm. or main, more mainstream Democrats in that we're, we're going, I mean, the election is in just a few days. Mm -hmm. uh, Republicans now uh, set up to do 
better than we were expected a few weeks ago, uh, in part because of the dire economic situation and energy prices, which are fueled by this war. Mm -hmm. And so perhaps, uh, of course, they don't say it in that letter, but maybe they are thinking in the best putting the best interests of the party in terms of its electoral prospects yeah. um, in a way that Biden himself is not. Yeah, and, or maybe some of the, and I should say, maybe some of those protests, like the ones we saw at ASU's town hall last week, actually worked. Hmm, interesting. All right, I'll tell you what's on my radar coming up. Stay with us. What is on your radar today, Robbie? Well, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention are likely to add the COVID-19 vaccine to the immunization schedule for children and adolescents. As we discussed on the show yesterday, an advisory panel has voted unanimously to recommend the COVID-19 vaccines for all Americans ages six months and older. And the full agency is almost certain to sign off on this decision. We don't expect any pushback there. Now, such a move would not automatically make the vaccines mandatory for children. In theory, CDC guidance is optional in theory. In practice, many municipalities will be inclined to require whatever the CDC recommends. We know that during the pandemic, cities and states controlled by Democratic political figures frequently rubber-stamped federal health officials' extremely cautious coronavirus recommendations relating to masks, social distancing, lockdowns, etc. Blue municipalities took their cues from their local health departments, which in turn copied the CDC's guidance wholesale into formal policy. When frustrated, caution-weary constituents would ask their local officials about timelines for getting rid of mass mandates and reopening schools, their answer was usually something like, when the CDC says so, that's when we'll do it. Okay, this means that adding the COVID-19 vaccine to the childhood immunization schedule will create a tremendous incentive for blue states to require it for public school children. And look, this would be a profound mistake. There's no way around it. In general, the rationale for vaccine mandates is public health. Public school children are required to get vaccinated for measles, for instance, in order to prevent the spread of measles to other more vulnerable individuals. This same logic, unfortunately, does not hold for the COVID-19 vaccines, which have largely failed to prevent the spread of infection, particularly for the COVID-19 variants. The vaccines do a tremendous job of preventing elderly and at-risk people from suffering severe illness and dying. But most children are fortunately spared the worst effects of COVID-19 anyway, particularly if they were already infected, which is now the case for nearly nine out of every 10 kids, according to the CDC. Some European countries have looked at the data, the same data, and determined that, well, there isn't enough net benefit to merit childhood vaccination. Denmark, for instance, is no longer recommending COVID-19 vaccines for otherwise healthy young people under the age of 18. This is not because Denmark's government was overtaken by right-wing anti-vaxxers, but rather because there are reasonable arguments both for and against the policy. Thus, leaving the matter to individual families and their doctors is the best thing to do. Indeed, even in the U.S., less than 40% of kids under the age of 11 have received the vaccine. Most parents have evidently decided that this course of action is not strictly necessary for their children. And look, there's nothing wrong with that. Requiring children to get the COVID-19 vaccine could, on the other hand, create several problems. Parents who are disinclined to give their children the COVID-19 vaccine, they might start to wonder whether the other vaccines on the childhood immunization schedule are similarly unnecessary which could have dire results for public health in terms of measles and other things. 
unvaccinated children might simply end up dropping out of school or being forced out of school, which would worsen the pandemic-driven crisis of learning loss. Low-income students and students of color will be hardest hit. Attempts by Washington, D.C. to require public school children to get jabbed were delayed after it became clear that a disproportionate number of unvaccinated black and brown young people would be banned from school under just such a policy. If, quote, if mandates become the norm, unvaccinated children will be displaced to virtual school, homeschool, or perhaps no school at all, writes Vinay Prasad, a health researcher and professor of epidemiology at the University of California, San Francisco. We've had him on the show before. He's probably familiar to much of the audience. He says the harm to kids from substandard education after nearly two years of disruption far exceeds any gains from compliance. Some states have already signaled that they will not require the COVID-19 vaccine of school children, even if the CDC does schedule it. Quote, states determine their own immunization schedule and Tennessee's will not be changing, a spokesperson for Tennessee's governor told the press. Given the reality of COVID-19, that most children already have some protection from it and getting vaccinated does not substantially prevent outbreaks of it, well, that's just the right move. Let individual families talk to their doctors about vaccinating their children, make the decision on a case-by-case basis. The government does not have a legitimate rationale for butting in, and if it does so, you're going to end up with a lot of kids kept out of school, and it's going to make the crisis we're going through in terms of reading scores, math scores. There was new data on that yesterday that we discussed a little bit on the show. It's going to get worse. Don't do it. So I think this is, uh, this is a big concern. The mm-hmm. more I've, I've looked into this, um, the more it seems to me quite likely that this will be, not because the CDC adding this to the schedule de facto causes um, a, a mandate, but because I suspect it will in practice result in a lot of mandates. And I am deeply, I'm very concerned about that. I, I, I think it's, it's hard to say that, it seems very clear to me that the effects of that will be worse. Yeah, I mean, it'll be interesting to see. Obviously, we can't predict, but I am struck by the fact that so many blue states like New York seem to have gone above and beyond, much to the chagrin of many, um, you know, some doctors, medical practitioners, public health experts, to say it's absolutely okay not to mask. You know, you remember the brouhaha over the signs that um, Kathy Holchel put up in the subway that said, like, this, this, or this are all fine ways to wear a mask, you know, mm-hmm. implying that it's okay, you know, it's a public, a, a good public health choice not to wear one as opposed to just staying neutral and out of it. Um, so it does seem to me that it might be the case that even the blue states recognize that this is like a losing political issue and have backed off of even just blindly following the CDC's recommendations. So it'll be interesting to see. But what I'm curious about is substantively, if this if the recommendations of the advice is largely tethered to whether or not the the idea that kids who have already had COVID, which is the majority of kids, have antibodies that offer them some degree of protection that makes the the shots moot, the vaccines moot, how long do we know that these antibodies are going to last? And does that mean that eventually people are going to get, need to get another shot? Or there's just this expectation they're going to get reinfected. And if the expectation is that everyone just serially gets reinfected or serially gets shots either way, when are we going to get better data about what the effects of those two different outcomes Mm -hmm. are relative to each other? Because that should determine what the public policy response is. Right. But that's not in the the current, what the the advisory panel, right, considered has nothing to do. It didn't consider, it wasn't considering one versus the other. It was just saying there should be, uh, you know, if you're older than six months, you should get 
the vaccine and then you should get a booster. And I, I don't know that it goes much beyond that. Yeah, um, the, I mean, the other question, and this is what I talked to with uh, Dr. Prasad when he came on, on my podcast, you know, he also made the argument about antibodies offering protection. And when I asked him about, well, what happens when the antibodies wear off, he said, well, we don't really know when that happens. And we'll know when we start to see another spike in hospitalizations and deaths. And at that point, we can reevaluate, which, again, doesn't sound so great if you're the person who's dying or hospitalized sure. as the test case. But I, I appreciate that response. But the other aspect of it is how much do you wait long COVID? How much is long COVID going to be a concern? And does it matter if the vaccines also aren't proven to limit or, or to reduce the incidence of long COVID? Those are the kind of questions that need to be asked by these right. medical practitioners before they can really, I think, credibly impose uh, vaccine mm -hmm. mandates uh, on kids. Or cr credibly put it alongside vaccines that are really important to get for public health reasons. And I, I worry they'll erode confidence. And, and now it's just you, they're, they're polluting that list almost yeah. by adding something that they don't have as much data on to, to suggest it's absolutely necessary for this age group over time. We, we just don't know yet, as yeah. you said. But we, we do know those other things are really important to get. You should absolutely get them. Yeah. And they serve a public health benefit, not just a because they do limit the spread of those diseases. Yeah. And now I, I, and there might be some, some people might take a second look at that. That would be very bad if they did. Yeah. But that's what yeah. I'm worried about. We'll have more Rising right after this. Stay with us. German sportswear giant Adidas has cut all business ties with Kanye West after he made a series of anti-Semitic remarks. Ye's recent comments and actions have been unacceptable, hateful, and dangerous, and they violate the company's values of diversity and inclusion, mutual respect, and fairness, Adidas said. The company says they will immediately halt the production of Yeezy products and stop paying the rapper and his companies. I know you have some thoughts about this, Brianna. You were doing some interesting Googling as I, we were preparing for this segment. I was, because look, I, I do think, I, I obviously strongly criticize what Kanye said substantively. There's not really any dilly-dallying to be done about the nature of uh, Kanye West's comments. I have and no one has defended them, no, except, Candace well, Owens, except Candace Owens. Yeah, and frankly, uh, some other conservatives have been asked to condemn the remarks, and they have basically sidestepped away from the question. There, people are still continuing to put out supportive tweets about Kanye West um, from that are, that are very much on the conservative side of the aisle, not that that uh, condemns all Republicans. But I've been interested in this other conversation that's started to happen, largely in some black spaces, where there is concern about whether or not Kanye West is being treated differently than other people who've been in similar situations. So I think the first red flag for a lot of folks was J.P. Morgan's choice to no longer bank with Kanye West which seems like a escalation of the sort that we've never seen despite having gone through an entire Me Too scandal with any number of extremely wealthy, high-profile people who have been brought to their knees. I've never heard of a bank saying, we're not going to do business with you. Banks are considered to be sort of like a, taking the train or an airplane. You're not, you don't expect that you're right to, to transact. Well, I don't know about that. We start, I mean, I agree with you. This is a troubling thing to start happening. You know, uh, Institutions like banks that are kind of thought Common to be... Common carriers. New, right, exactly. Uh, but no, we saw that a little bit with... Uh, no, okay, not specifically with banks, but with financial services. Uh, well, stuff like for, Parler. For par and well, and, and also yeah. for, uh, for the truckers yes. and for certain fundraisers and things. Yes, but that's shutting down... I'm not saying that was yeah, right. Yeah, yeah, I also yeah. think that that was a problem. Right. But that's shutting down accounts. 
as opposed to saying that you're not allowed to bank with this institution anymore. That's shutting down you know, your ability to yeah. pay for, send money to certain movements and things like that. It's a little different. I mean, people, you have to bank. Being unbanked from a progressive perspective, and obviously Kanye is small as violin. He's certainly not hurting for funds or resources. But from a perspe- pro- progressive perspective, people can't have, when you can't access um, loans, when you can't put your money into a safe place, when you can't, you know, so many places are cardless and, 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 and don't accept cash. It's a real kind of, um, uh, kind of civil liberties issue to be unbanked. I mean, far right speaking. figures have been shut out of PayPal type things, maybe not banks, but possibly banks. JP by that Morgan. I mean like Richard Spencer and no, like I, I explicitly. I, my, my point yeah. here is not to say that it's Fine when that happens. Yeah, no, this, I know you're that. This that. feels like an escalation mm-hmm. of the sort that I think that people should be troubled by. So this Adidas contract, I think, is interesting for similar reasons. And so, so you know, is this the is this something that is kind of par for the course for this kind of company? Now, I do think that we have a longer history of apparel, clothing manufacturers, things like that, distancing themselves from bad actors. But well, and also. Uh, Certainly associating themselves with people who at various points have been bad actors, probably. I mean, For, for sure. But here's the question. Some people have chosen, chosen this moment to, to look at how Mel Gibson was treated after his anti-Semitic comments as a point of comparison. And just as a reminder, Mel Gibson was accused of doing many things. He has repeatedly, apparently... Uh, referred to Jewish people as oven dodgers, asking Winona Ryder at a party whether or not she was quote Jesus. a quote unquote uh, oven dodger. Ooh. Obviously, a really horrific reference to the Holocaust and gas chambers. Um, when he was famously pulled over by the LA County Sheriff's Department in July of 2006, um, he drunk uh, said to the officer, apropos of nothing, effing Jews. Uh, he did not bleep out the effing, obviously. Uh, the Jews are responsible for all the world's war, war, uh, wars in the world before asking the officer, are you Jew? Um, he's also not minced words about black people. You know, there was that recording yeah. that he had when he was in that abusive relationship with his uh, previous partner, and he told her, if you get raped by a pack of N-words, again, he did not say N-words, it'll be your fault. Uh, you know, th- those kind of statements. And even after he made those statements, he wasn't dropped by his talent agency, the way that uh, Kanye West has now been dropped by CAA. In fact, he joined CAA after those kind of remarks were made. So the question is, is it that Kanye is just too big a star or are there other factors going on here? But a lot of that, wasn't a lot of the Mel, that Mel Gibson stuff set, that was many years ago. My guess is if that happened today, it would result in dropping of everything. I mean, there's greater, um, there's greater sensitivity to that kind of stuff. There's more intolerance of that kind of stuff in the corporate world, in, uh, in everything. I, I, I don't know. You're, you're trying to well, put it. Maybe, maybe it's a discrepancy. Maybe it's not. But I, I and, think and today is, he would suffer those exact Is this a direction? I mean, is this a direction that people should be moving in is the critique that Kanye, you know, Mel Gibson should have been held to a higher standard then and perhaps should still be held to a higher standard now as his career has largely rebounded? Or is it that banks and these kind of organizations just stay out of these kind of culture wars? I I do have a sort of, you know, you can appreciate the art while thinking the artist is reprehensible kind of attitude. I think you can have that attitude for Kanye. I think you could still enjoy his music. You're free to do so. I probably wish he would just focus on creating more of it. Similarly, Mel Gibson is obviously repulsive. Um, I don't care for him as an actor. I love his film Apocalypto. is one of my favorite movies of all time, as I've said. I think it's fantastic. Um, I think it should be able to separate these things from a creative standpoint. And then, yeah, I think it's right to be troubled by... 
Right, the Adidas contract's kind of a different thing. He's a spokesperson. He's a brand ambassador yeah. for it. Kanye is. Yeah. Y you can understand them wanting to part with someone who is, you know, who has now several times gone out of his way. This isn't just, oh, I screwed up. I said something I shouldn't have. Said. I'm sorry. He's he's continuing this. For sure. Um, that's different than the the financial institution, yeah. which doesn't really have a uh, have a a message or, right. uh, or expressing an editorial view yeah, or something. Amtrak not going to let Kanye uh, right, take the train right, because he's right. anti-Semitic. Although people often right, people often bring up the Amtrak thing. It is Amtrak does throw off like aggressive passengers. Well, like sure, if you if, you're, if you don't follow the rules of Amtrak, you get thrown off. Right. Right. I, I know because I wasn't super happy about the mask rules. <laughs> oh goodness gracious! Speaking before from you, experience. Before you roll your eyes at me, no, I've never been <laughs> never been thrown off of Amtrak, etc. Uh, that was someone else. As of this recording, Ye has not yet responded to the Adidas decision. We'll continue to report on any more developments, more rising after this. Florida Governor Ron DeSantis and his Democratic challenger Charlie Crist met for the only debate of the Florida governor's race last night. Crist pestered DeSantis on his presidential ambitions. Let's take a listen. And let me remind the viewers, he wouldn't even answer you if he would stay four years if you re-elect him as your governor. You're running for governor. You're asking them to vote for you for governor. At a minimum, you ought to be able to tell them if you get re-elected, you'll serve as governor. Ron? While DeSantis refused to directly answer the question, he used the question to take a jab at his opponent. Well, listen, I know that Charlie's interested in talking about 2024 and Joe Biden, but I just want to make things very, very clear. The only worn out old donkey I'm looking to put out to pasture is Charlie Chris. Kristen DeSantis also traded jabs on a number of issues. Let's listen to some more of that. You have people that are teaching, uh, and actually his running mate has said this in the past, that teaching the United States was built on stolen land. That is inappropriate for our schools. It's not true. Uh, and I'm happy that we're going to be able to have accurate history, and we're going to make sure that we honor those who have sacrificed so that we can be free. There's an old expression, Ron. Those who don't know history may be condemned to repeat it. Usually people use that in reference to the Holocaust. It could just as easily be referenced to slavery in our country. It happened. It's a fact. We shouldn't have a whitewash approach to educating our children. He said you need to force people to shelter in their own homes. That would have destroyed the state of Florida. That would have caused, that would have caused our tourism industry to go into the toilet. It would have locked out millions of kids from school. I rejected Charlie Chris's lockdown letter. I kept this state open and I kept this state free. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that's ever shut down our schools. You're the only governor in the history of Florida that shut down our businesses. I never did that as governor. You're the one who's the shutdown guy. We need to have somebody who is at the helm that understands it's important to listen to science, to do what's right, to utilize common sense. You don't just shut down at the outset, and then when it's you know, politically convenient for you, you want to open back up to store political points. I just think we're better when everybody counts. Uh, I understand not everyone's going to be born in perfect circumstances, but I would like to see everybody have a shot. I'm proud of the 15 weeks that we did. I know Charlie Crist opposes that, even though the baby is fully formed, has a heartbeat, can feel pain, and can suck their thumb. I don't want to ban abortion. I want to make sure we keep a woman's right to choose available to the women of the state of Florida. And I want to make sure that we don't have a governor in the future who wouldn't even allow exceptions for rape or incest. 
Meanwhile, a new ABC News Ipsos poll found that 72% of Republicans support DeSantis and say he should have a, quote, good deal of influence in the future direction of the GOP, while only 64% said the same about Trump, which is very interesting. Joining us now to discuss is state capital reporter for WFLA in Florida, Libby Dean. Welcome, Libby. Thanks for having me. Good morning. Yes, thanks for joining us. So I know you were covering uh, this debate. What were your takeaways? I mean, as you can see from those clips, the takeaways and the jabs were there, as they always are in these kinds of debates. Uh, but the main takeaways are the presidential run. I think that that is the most clippable moment from uh, the debate that people are going to see the most of. But also, I mean, they touch on several hot topics of abortion, uh, LGBTQ rights, and um, several controversial things that DeSantis has talked about for the last four years of his uh gubernatorial reign. Do do voters, do you think, have the sense that they really are, if they're picking DeSantis, they're picking him for two years because he is absolutely going to run? I, I thought it was interesting that Charlie Chris pointed that out because uh, I, I do expect that he, he will run. Is that is that on people's minds as they're making this choice? The thing is, when I talked with, because I interview a lot of state lawmakers here, and I asked that question, you know, do you think that that is going to make a difference when people really head out to the polls? And most of them say no. You know, mm -hmm. this they're going to vote party-based and uh, stick with their party lines here. And that's, that's what we're seeing uh, with a lot of the polls that are coming out, that that's not going to change. And then also, if it were to change, it would just be him running in 2024, and then we have the lieutenant governor uh, lined up for that position. So I think it'll be interesting to see if more more news comes out about her policies and what uh, kind of gubernatorial, um, what, what kind of governor she would be. Yeah, I can't see that mattering at all. That might be the kind of conversation you want to have in a, in a primary, that I'm the one that's going to be here for four years and you're just using this as a launching pad for a broader political career. But I can't imagine a single person saying, oh, he's only going to be around for two years. Let me take a Democrat instead. You know, it was interesting from listening to the clips and trying to judge the, the audience, you know, judge something, glean something from the audience reaction, is that it felt like DeSantis was on really strong ground when he was talking about COVID and lockdowns. There was an interesting kind of pushback from the room when he hit on some, some other subjects. It sounded like he really walked into something that he didn't need to walk into, claiming that, you know, it's it's wrong to acknowledge that the United States was is on, on, on stolen ground. He said that's factually untrue. I mean, you can have an opinion about whether or not you should start meetings in classrooms or organizations with an acknowledged, a land acknowledgement. You can think that that's, you know, cringe or not how you would want to use your time. But stating that as a factual matter, the United States, I guess, just was here empty <laughs> when, when Europeans arrived. Seems like a weird way to defend your way of teaching history in the classroom. How, how do you think that that, that exchange came off in Florida? You know, that exchange, and there's been several instances where DeSantis makes these kinds of claims that uh, obviously are culpable, like I was saying. But the difference here is we had Christ coming back and being able to kind of, you know, debate him. And that was something that was new because usually it's just DeSantis at um, press conferences, like kind of um, talking to the crowd and saying, here's what, here's what I have to say. And there's not this response. And we saw the, the response from Chris here. And uh, when it comes to the response of uh, the crowd, it was very loud and somewhat distracting, some would say. 
Do we know anything about the crowd composition? Because I know, for example, when like Bernie Sanders did a Fox News town hall where people were very receptive to Medicare for all, there were accusations that he had stacked the crowd, which wasn't actually true. And there, there, there's sometimes a sense of what, whether one side or the other has managed to get kind of like a louder cheering section. Do you think the kind of feedback that we're hearing in the room was reflective of what's going on in the state? Or do you think it was rigged there at all? I don't necessarily think it was rigged. I mean, obviously, there's going to be some kind of imbalance there. But it was interesting because each issue that they would switch between, it, it was the same kind of like boos or ahs from the mm. crowds. It wasn't necessarily uh, just one candidate that was getting that kind of feedback. Mm. Uh, and I think the loudest they got, though, was on that abortion topic, which would obviously mm. be coming from Chris's uh, side of the side of the crowd. The there's been lots of reporting in the media that suggests DeSantis consciously models um, the way he talks, the way he debates after Donald Trump uh, in a sort of move to I have the same kind of support among uh, right wing people that Trump has. I, I think this debate is most interesting in that, like, I obviously expect DeSantis will win the gubernatorial race and then I expect him to seek national offices. So it's interesting, because you're right, he doesn't do a lot of, uh, of, of debates. It's interesting to see how he would handle um, someone like Joe Biden or maybe someone like Donald Trump, even before he gets to a Joe Biden. Um, what was he like from a, from a command the room kind of debate perspective? Is, it, is there truth to him modeling himself after a Trump? I would say that he definitely has a different style, but you know, I was actually watching his uh, debate that he did four years ago when he ran for governor and that that race was close and his style changed a lot. And I could see that being modeled after Trump, but I think that might just be also some, that that's kind of the re Republican rhetoric sometimes is um, to be combated. But we also saw that from Charlie Crist, which was interesting because Charlie Crist is very he's just a he's a well-seasoned politician who uh has been through three of these gubernatorial debates already so right. as a republican uh, previously a republican. <laughs> yes and yeah and we even had someone uh that i was speaking with who was an analyst last night who had debated uh charlie Crist in the past and was saying you know he he's good at this he's practiced this he's um a well-oiled machine when it comes to these debates and uh, I, I think DeSantis was off-putting sometimes, but I wouldn't say necessarily that he took exactly the rhetoric that Trump did, mm. say, when he debated Hillary. Yeah. Mm. yeah well, Can't wait to see them on the stage at the same time. Yeah, it, it should be really interesting, especially I, I'm curious to see how uh, DeSantis' response to the abortion question plays, because, again, he didn't actually answer the, the fundamental question that I think is on a lot of voters' minds, which is, are you going to support a ban on abortion instead of pivoting to this argument that a 15-week-old fetus is fully foreign, which is obviously not true. Well, uh, doesn't it, isn't that suggesting that he supports a kind of 15-weeks policy? Absolutely not. <laughs> I don't know. That's Not, what that's what uh, Youngkin supports. That's what other a, no a, a ban on abortion. Not to, a ban on abortion totally was the question at hand. As the, like the like the ban right, that Lindsey Graham. He didn't Graham, say that he did. 
No, he dodged the question entirely. He didn't say, no, I don't support Lindsey Graham pushing for a 15-week, a, a full abortion ban, a national abortion ban. And I think that given the inconsistency of Republican pledges on this issue for years now, saying that they would uphold Roe and wouldn't come for Roe, obviously that wasn't true. It has led a lot of people to not take any kind of those any of those representations seriously. But we appreciate you joining us today, Libby. Thank you all so much for having me. It was great. We'll have more rising for you right after this. A recent New York Times Siena College poll shows that 49% of likely voters polled plan to vote Republican in the upcoming midterms compared to 45% who plan to vote Democrat, an improvement for the GOP from September. The biggest shift came from voters who identified as both women and independent. In September, this cohort favored Democrats by 14 points, but now favors the GOP by 18 points. Joining us now to discuss is host of Straight Shot No Chaser podcast, Teslin Figaro, and senior policy analyst at the Independent Women's Forum, Inez Stepman. Welcome to you both. Thanks. Thank you. Inez, what do you think explains this fairly rapid uh, reversal in favor of the GOP, uh, reversal of Democrats' fortunes with this specific group? Yeah, I mean, I think it, it goes back to other polls that repeatedly show that the top issues in this election are the economy and inflation. And by the way, as a third place consistently across different polls, immigration um, and and voters see and especially independent women see uh, the Republican Party addressing those issues. Um, and, and they are not swayed only by abortion. So I think what um, the actually the New York Times had a quote from one of the voters that I thought encapsulated the data pretty well in that article, which is she said, I am concerned about Roe v. Wade being overturned, but I'm concerned about other things. Um, and I, I think that's a pretty good encapsulation of why this group has swung so fast. Although I would caution, this is a, a poll of just over 300 people. The margin of error could be pretty large. I think that still there is that swing. Uh, there is some kind of swing of, of independent women. I would be a little bit cautious about this this number and how large it is. It is what, in your view, has been the productive Republican messaging on inflation? I think that you're right that they've been stressing that in lieu of issues like abortion. But it's not clear to me that there's been an affirmative uh, plan articulated by Republicans as opposed to just uh, criticisms of what Democrats are or aren't doing on that score. Yeah, I mean, I actually have to agree with you. I don't think Republicans have been very clear about anything um, about what they actually want to do. And that's somewhat by design, right? Um, their Republican leadership has been afraid to actually put forward an agenda. They're relying on how unpopular Joe Biden is. Um, and, and that may not that may be a good strategy for the election, but it's not necessarily a good strategy for after the election. Right. Mm. They, they actually need to put forward a plan and actually show how they're going to fix some of these issues if they expect to retain popularity and actually do something good for the country. Uh, but yeah, I actually agree with your criticism. I don't think the Republican Party has been clear about what it wants to do about inflation or just about anything else. Um, okay. And that, I think, is by design from the leadership. Teslin, what do you think Democrats need to do to be competitive, more competitive with this group? Well, I'm, I'm so glad you brought up the point, uh, Inez, about how this was only 300 people in the poll. You know, that's one of the things that uh, I think is critically important. I have an entire training that I talk about polls in different area codes that shows you that polls are not as accurate uh, as we would like them to be. But it is an indication to give you an idea where folks are going. Um, I really just do believe uh, in the NBC poll 
uh, even though, again, not completely accurate, but the NBC poll shows that 70% of registered voters are more enthusiastic. And both sides say that this is the election of our time, which they said that last time. Every two years, they say this is the They'll most important election. next time, <laughs> et cetera. Right, right. So um, it is showing that voter enthusiasm is uh, higher on the Republican side, 78%, 69% on the Democrat side. But again, it's really going to come down to those uh, who really is going to get out for their team on Election Day. To answer your question more directly on what Democrats can do, uh, you know, I'm not trying to be pessimistic in any way. I'm just being very uh, real. I think everything that's going to be done has been done. Not much will change in two weeks. People have already made their mind up. They've already decided which side they're on. And it really just comes down to how uh, will folks be able to get out the vote, which means how many people can they actually get to the polls between now and Election Day. But I do think I will caution Democrats uh, in basically being excited about the early numbers showing that they had a lead on early voting because that is a strategy time and time again that folks say that you know they think they already have it in the bag and then election day republicans show up and and take a lot of those seats hmm. well despite democrats heavy focus on abortion this election cycle at least recently the share of likely voters who said economic concerns were the most important issue facing america has leaped since july to 44 percent from 36 percent far higher than any other issue, and voters most concerned with the economy favored Republicans overwhelmingly by more than a two-to-one margin, which you know speaks to what you were um, saying, Inez. At what point will Republicans have to explain what they are going to affirmatively do? You know, are they? Does that mean cutting spending? Does that mean? I mean, they suggested uh, some of the Ukraine spending might come at least in the House. Kevin McCarthy has talked about that. Um, but, a, but, you know, a positive a, agenda for what the party is going to do. Is, is that a, a, uh, a symptom of the fact that you know, we're going to have even a, a Republican, massive Republican victories are going to produce divided government? So the reality will be mostly thwarting what Biden does anyway, rather than putting forward what their program is. Yeah, I don't know um, that they have as clear a case for what they're going to do in the future as they do going back a sort of blaming case. I do think they have a good blaming case. Um, they're, they're pointing to a lot of spending that increased inflation, a lot of government packages. They're pointing more um, especially to the fact that closures in many states went on much longer um, during the pandemic that that than were necessary. And I think they probably will hold hearings um, about the decisions to lock down and especially to close schools for so long. I think so. They, I think they have a better case, essentially blaming or a case of how we got here, blaming Democrats and blaming Joe Biden for some of the decisions that he made. I think rightfully so. Um, they have less of a case, as you just said, for what they're actually going to do other than perhaps not pass another massive stimulus bill. Um, but that's not really a positive case. That's just, OK, well, we'll stop doing Doing some of the things that we think are causing the inflation that Democrats are doing, but that's not actually a positive case to deal with the economy. I do think they can rely on uh, the pre-pandemic experience that we all still remember of, of a roaring U.S. economy. And by the way, gains that actually went um, more proportionately to blue collar workers than in past uh, the past 30 years in terms of economic booms and busts in the United States. So I think they're going to, again, point backwards to the Trump record before the pandemic on the economy. Um, I also think Democrats are really hampered by um, a couple issues that they can't stop talking about internally because a lot of their base wants to talk about them. Here I'm thinking about the fact that the, the president just gave an interview to Dylan, right, um, to talk about minor transition 
And then also the focus, incredible focus on climate change when every poll, every issues poll shows that those two issues are either very unpopular or at best, they're very, very low on voters' priority lists, except for a tiny part of the Democratic base. So they have to keep talking about that, those issues, in order to play to their base. But unlike abortion, there aren't uh, even like a sort of substantive number of voters who are concerned about those issues. And I think, if anything, they're turning away voters by talking about those topics. So I, I don't know. I've never heard any of the Biden administration be particularly vocal about climate change. I think, frankly, much to the chagrin of the left. But I will say this. Bernie Sanders has been making the point that you made earlier there, Inez, about um, the fact that Republicans aren't making an affirmative case. He came out saying, you know, what they are talking about, cuts in Social Security, Medicare and Medicaid. Is that irresponsible? It's absolutely irresponsible. He said that on CNN recently. Teslin, do you think that there is room for Democrats to be making that point more strongly, that Republicans do, in fact, have a plan? And the reason that they're not talking about it is because the plan is largely to strip what little social safety net and support is left for folks who have been devastated by um, not just the uh, COVID pandemic, but the economic decline clients since then and who have been at the, the poor end of Trump's tax cuts, which 85 percent of which went to the top one percent. Uh, is, is there space there for uh, Democrats to make that point and bring that point home? Or do you think there's still some uh, um, legitimacy in relying on this kind of abortion approach? Yeah, I, I think with less than two weeks in the game, uh, my communication advice would be to not worry about trying to counter somebody else's argument and constantly chasing uh, what Republicans are talking about and offering a defense. Uh, they really should have been building a more offense strategy to talk about what they've done. And Democrats have still not really grasped the idea of talking about what you've done. And so if Democrats believe that they have uh, made some deliverables to the table, then they need to be talking about that, you know, constantly just countering, uh, allowing uh, uh, Republicans to control the narrative and constantly just responding to them. It's just simply not working. Right now, there are three states uh, that are really the states to watch for Senate control, Pennsylvania, Georgia, and Nevada. It really comes down to just these three states. So while we're talking about a national conversation on what's going on in Oklahoma or what's going on in New York, the reality is, is these three states. So looking at the economy in these three states matters. How are they getting out the vote in these three states? What mes messaging are they uh, pushing in those three states? Because remember, Republicans only need to win one of those states where not only do Democrats have to maintain, but they also have to gain. And so they have the uphill battle. Uh, right now, polls indicate that the Republicans will win on the House side. But again, polls are just polls. We won't know until they actually come out. But the strategy of trying to respond to Republicans has not worked. It will never work. It will constantly allow Republicans to control the narrative, to control the puppet string, the, the puppet strings uh, opposed to Democrats actually delivering on policy. And then when they deliver on policy, actually putting that message. So for folks, for folks uh, who are voter depressed, what I call voter depressed, which is different than voter suppression, they don't see it. They don't see it. They don't hear it and they don't feel it in the pocket. And that is what is really uh, hurting Democrats. And to be honest, I just don't know how much can change uh, within the next 10 days. Hmm. Well, Inez and Teslin, we got to leave it there. But thank you so much for joining us. Thank, thank you. you. And stay tuned for more Rising in just a minute. Inflation reached the highest it's been in 40 years, peaking at 9% in June, and Americans are paying the price. People are shelling out more and more for everything from gas, food, and other basic goods, but leading Democrats are attempting to redirect the focus and claim that inflation is a global problem, not just a U.S. problem. Here is Progressive Senator Bernie Sanders on CNN State of the Union speaking about the issue. I think it's important that when we talk about inflation, Republicans will say, well, this is Joe Biden's fault. Really? 
Our inflation rate is much too high. It is 8%. It is 10% in the UK, 10% throughout Europe, 7% in Canada. Inflation is a global problem. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi sang the same tune when she would on CBS's Face the Nation. Let's watch. The fact is, is that uh, when I hear people talk about inflation, as I heard him there, we have to change that subject. Inflation is a global phenomenon. The EU, the European Union, the UK, the British have higher inflation rate than we do here. It's not the fight is not about inflation. It's about the cost of living. And if you look at what we have done to bring down the cost of prescription drugs, Mm -hmm. to bring down the cost of of energy and the rest in our legislation, you will see that there has been opposed every step of the way by the Republicans. And they have no plan for lowering the cost of living or helping with inflation. I don't know what she's talking about for lowering the cost of energy. Um, I, I think I, they mean the strategic oil reserves, the 15 million sure. barrels, uh, whatever, that have been released. Sure, a very short-sighted um, plan. But nevertheless, why? I, I don't see why, why it excuses Biden or Biden policies to say that other countries that have had similar policies are also suffering from inflation. Like, how does that get our leaders off the hook? Well, so two things are happening here. They think the argument is right, that there is, there are some, there's some aspect of the inflation that is global and not predictable. It's, it's caused by the... Republicans are blaming a $1,400 check that was given out two years ago for the inflation that we're having right now. They're, they're laying the cause well, of the Well, a $1,400 fee- check times well, well, they're, they're, hundreds of millions of people. Well, they're laying the blame at the feet of the social support services that enabled so many people to survive through the early days of COVID. And the point that Democrats are making is that you can't attribute it to that when you see global inflation rates being similar in other countries who did various different things to head off the worst effects of COVID. So Republicans on some level do have to reckon with the fact that EU, it's 10.9%, Germany, 10.9%, UK, 10.1%. Italy, 9.4%. America's down below all those countries on the list. It is a little bit lower in Canada, but still high. It's very high in Canada as well. So the argument isn't that America has done it best compared to the rest of the world. But it's that when you see all of these numbers globally, you have to get at the root of what is causing inflation and not pretend that if Republicans are magically in office, it's going to go away. People are going to be in for a rude awakening if they wake up. Inflation is still high, and Republicans also aren't willing to give you any but of these the social safety that helps you survive. Those countries also spent a lot of money and also had shutdowns of their economy for long periods of time. So that doesn't, that doesn't so what, excuse what these country, policies. So what country would you want America to be modeled on in terms of how it addressed COVID and inflation? I would want to well, none of these countries. They've all so what, done things so that country? are bad. What is what is the model? What we is the recommendation? Stop spending more money than we have to spend. So what we what should. is the Republican recommendation that there shouldn't have been there shouldn't have been two thousand dollar checks? Are Republicans going to run Ab- on no no checks? Because right now in Florida, Ron DeSantis is administering the COVID aid that his state received, rightly so, to help people out in the form of uh, checks per child. So the same kind of program that was extremely popular that Democrats implemented, the child tax credit, Ron DeSantis is 
is to it can be popular and still cause inflation. Whether it's popular has nothing to do with anything. That's what you run on. Regardless of the inflationary effects, thinks it's a good idea, and that's the point. At the time, there is an awareness that a certain degree of spending can cause inflation. But unless you were going to sit out here and own the fact that you are saying that people should die in the streets, people should be homeless, people should be able to afford food, people should be able to afford glass, gas, because the number one thing is trillions of dollars feels good in the short term, but gets us in a bad place for our economy. Well, that is. Yeah. Republicans, I'm, I'm forcing you to do, Robbie, here what, Repu- what Democrats well, should be forcing it. Republicans to do. Well, just, Republicans are just, just as dishonest just, as Democrats, just, just but they own. need to be honest with the people that spending this amount of money hurt is bad for the economy in the long run. Shutting down the economy is bad for but the... But you, you don't get to, pe- to, to paint half the picture. Do you think people should not have gotten $1,400 checks? Yes or no? That's the question Republicans have to answer. Do you? Yeah, think I also you wouldn't cut, have shut down businesses do, do beyond you, the initial... Fine. Don't. Do you think that pe- right, that, that would have been a great should, idea? Do you think that Republicans should cut Medi- uh, Medicare and Social Security because that's what they're angling to do right now? Yes or no? The, these are. I, I, I really appreciate that you can think that mistakes were made. I have a difference of opinion about with, with Republicans about whether or not the COVID interventions were right, proper, and good. I do think there were a lot of corporate payoffs and PPP loans and a lot of things that shouldn't have gone out that Republicans have had yeah. no issue with as well. And corporate well, Democrats, air, and no Democrats have with. had no issue with as well. And they have happily taken those funds, and that's fine. But mistake, you can say mistakes are made. But now we're in the today, and people are suffering. You don't get to go on TV and out of one side of your mouth say, people are suffering. What are we going to do? Democrats are failing. Americans are struggling. They can't afford milk. They can't afford gas. And then on the other side, have absolutely Absolutely no solution for it but to say, oh, remember a year ago when we did help you out a little bit with those things? We shouldn't have done that either, and we're not going to do that And also when we bailed forward. out the airline industry, and yeah, when we, we bailed out that. We should have bought the airline and industry, when we it would have been cheaper. Ukraine billions of dollars. And I, when I agree we, with all there of that. Are all these, like, I agree with all of that. Some aspects of our spending and our social safety net are more defensible than others. I 100% sure. agree. And I think where we can agree on this, Robbie, is that the, the problem is that the focus of both Republicans and a lot of corporate dims is always first and foremost to cut those benefits that go to the poorest, most fragile, struggling people on the margins, and not to talk about the war in Ukraine spending, not to talk about um, uh, some of the other things that you mentioned. It's all Social Security, Medicare, and hurting the poor. It's I mean, not. I don't know that Republicans mainly back talk about P- those P-P-O- things. It's not cutting taxes for the rich, which are at a historically low rate. Like, it's never those kinds of conversations. What about all the spending that's happening by the 1%? Do Republic, about, are Republicans my, my op, currently myopically focused on Social Security? I don't think so. They are. They are. So. That's they never what, talk about they, it. No, they're not, they never talk about it because they know it's unpopular. They want to secretly cut Social Security and Medicare. They want to secretly do those given things. up on that. No, they, they absolutely have not. And Bernie Sanders has been trying. I'm sorry, I'm bringing up Bernie Sanders, but he's literally the only person who has his eye on the prize in that. Because guess what? A lot of Democrats want to cut Social Security and Medicaid, too. Barack Obama wanted to cut Social Security and Medicare. And we have to start focusing on what I mean, the they, elites are doing to the poorest people in this, com- in this okay, country. Okay, but these, Social Security is going to go insolvent. I mean, part of it is this is no, a— No, Social fra- Security was designed to go insolvent by a test being put on a, a funding test. The people not paying into it right now are not going to get the benefits they're paying into, and I do think that is a problem. There are a range of ways you could solve it, but it is just letting it right. go the way so it is is it, not a— don't cut it. And cut and, and and do things like what um, what was it uh, Marco Rubio or was it Ted Cruz? I'm sorry, I forget. But one of them, their big plan was to, to you know they're constantly trying to raise the retirement age in a in a world where people are dying earlier for a whole host of reasons, including I'm sorry the ongoing pandemic. The Republicans' plan is to make it, you're concerned about people not getting the benefit of their Social Security. No one's going to get the benefit of their Social Security if you have to live to the age of 70 to even cash in. Well, I I don't. 
to, to punish people paying into it right now, I mean, th like, how much more do you tax like young people when they're not going to get that benefit? I mean, it, like, it's, it's generational should, crime, the generational theft. Yeah, well, you should get the benefit. Talk about generational theft. Our whole generation is fakakta, as they say. Yeah, by some of these entitlement programs. No, the, the problem, is, the, the solution is to return to a tax rate that we had in the golden age of the 1950s and 60s, where the rich actually paid People their fair 20 share. Longer, 20 years longer than they did. When the rich paid their fair share and start to reform some of these programs to make it more beneficial for the poorest and most working class people in this country. Not what to is say the solution share? is they to simply turn off the millions and billions of dollars. No, it's what not. Is their no, fair they share? don't. The, 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 the top tax bracket used to be upwards of 90% in the 1960s, which doesn't mean that rich people pay 90% of their earnings. What it means is that over a certain income amount, you that the additional wealth is taxed at a higher rate. We can't even get people on board with a, a tax on two cents for every dollar that Elizabeth Warren was advocating for during the campaign. And when I say people, I don't mean the American people who find the tax, uh, tax uh, wealth tax overwhelmingly popular. It's the corporatists in Washington and both parties who refuse to give that kind of a policy that could, could bail out the American people a fair hearing. I mean, there's so many, so many things we're doing to benefit corporations that have nothing to do with lowering their taxes, including much of our entire pandemic policy being a giveaway to I Pfizer. I entirely <laughs> agree. Entirely agree. They should start there. All right. We're being told we got to go. More <laughs> rising after this. President Biden is facing backlash from conservatives online after he hosted transgender activists at the White House for an interview. Let's watch some of that. It feels like Republicans have turned trans and non-binary people into this thing to blame society's downfall on in some ways. And this narrative is not only dangerous to our mental health, but also our physical safety. And particularly trans women of color are being murdered at an alarming rate. More than any other group of people. Thank you. How can Democratic leaders be more effective in advocating for us trans people and our families and our lives and our opportunities? I'm not being facetious when I say this, being seen with people like you. No, I mean it. I genuinely mean it. People fear what they don't know. They fear what they don't know. And when people realize, individuals realize, oh, this is what they're telling me to be frightened of? The trans part's not immoral. What they're trying to do to trans persons is immoral. The president also ruffled some feathers by confirming his commitment to gender-affirming care. Do what you, you think states should have a right to ban gender-affirming health care? I don't think any state or anybody should have the right to do that. As a moral question and as a legal question. I just think it's wrong. So I don't know, what do you make of this, Robbie? Well, look, I do take issue with what um, this individual said in the, in the first clip. Um, yes, it's true that there is, have been a number of, uh, of, of deaths, of killings in that specific demographic, trans women of color. It is not, however, because of anti-trans bigotry. They're, they're not victims of anti-trans hate crimes. Um, it, it, we're talking about people who are in uh, very dangerous, at-risk situations in terms of like drug dealing and prostitution. And these are very tragic deaths and fine to discuss policy interventions to protect them. But it is, it is not transphobic people are killing them because they're trans. It's that, just not true. Isn't that part of the argument that the whole point of having various marginalized identities 
being poor, being more likely to be poor because you are disproportionately kicked out of the house at a young age, are experiencing homelessness at a higher rate, are therefore turning to certain kinds of jobs that are more dangerous, like sex work, et cetera. All of those things coming together are part of the experience, right? I don't know how much you can disaggregate them. But if the point is that we're in agreement that this population is uniquely vulnerable for whatever reason, I don't really care if trans women are dying because someone who has a t-shirt that says, I hate trans people is going around on a vendetta versus being in situations that put them higher at risk. The point is that you don't want people to be dying. I mean, so, I support legalizing both sex work and yeah. drugs. So sure, so, I support so, policy interventions that I think would address this. But, yeah, so I guess but it's not, it, there's no trans, I wouldn't put a trans, there's no reason well, to put well, a trans framing well, on Well, my critique of this would be, if anything, that... It, there is a little dissonance for me seeing, and again, I don't know this woman's background, but seeing someone who is not a so trans she's a woman recent, of color. She recently uh, trans, or she she has a TikTok account or something like that, social oh, that's media her. account. Yes, where okay. where it's a day whatever of being a girl, day right. seventy of being no, a girl. No, I've seen the coverage of that. So, yeah. so again, these are these are choices that I find to be incongruent. Why have this person who, you know frankly, is not a trans woman of color, is not from that kind of a marginalized space that she's speaking to, who has, you know, herself attracted, is not going to be the most sympathetic person, rightly or wrongly, to a broader right audience, and who also isn't talking about the material issues that are affecting trans women of color. I would have loved to have seen a roundtable with trans women who were talking about poverty, who are talking about mm -hmm. homelessness, who are talking about the renter's crisis. A lot of issues that, frankly, Joe Biden has been insufficiently responsive to and which are disproportionately problems for the trans community, but which are problems much more broadly. Why not talk about why haven't you, you know, offered any kind of plan or solution to incredibly high health care rates, since that's something that is affecting people's access to gender-affirming care? Instead of just sitting here talking in the abstract about how people, rich trans people who can afford these kinds of interventions, um, can have access to them. Right. As for the, the banning gender affirming care, look, yeah, I don't really want to involve legislatures or governments in these kinds of things. I, you know, if you're if you're above the age of consent and your parent, well, if you're above the age of consent, whatever, you can have if the if a doctor is willing to do it and you are an adult that's your business the the dispute is over people who are underage people who mm -hmm. are children uh and pr particularly probably in a case where a family is not as on board with it again if the kid really wants it family really wants it doctor wants to do it maybe i don't approve but it, you know it's just not my business at the end of the day people should do more looking out for their own families and their own children minding more of their own business i think um, that said, I, I do see the kind of um, uh, it, like there, there's it's much more unsettled. The science behind a lot of all of this is, uh, I think, more unsettled than activists on behalf of these issues concede that we don't have long term term data on what happens if you socially transition when you're very young or pre-puberty and then you take hormone blockers and then you have everything else and you know how does it turn out for you again i'm sure this is a good positive step for some people um is this the normal experience for someone because it is a little bit of a cultural I mean, thing I mean, now to start identifying in a different gender which i also don't care about but there's that category of like people just messing with the concept of gender uh, of gender because that's like things young people do now well, but and wait then a actually minute. We, we cannot say that 
there is not, it's not a black box of we don't know what happens. People have been transitioning for decades. And I understand that there is, with greater social acceptance of trans people, more people who are going to be transitioning. And on the margin, some people who are going to come to detransition and make a different decision as they're older. But it is, it is worth noting that the overwhelming majority of people who transition, who medically transition, do not detransition. The, over- the, the, the conversation about detransitioners, no. I really respect folks who brought it up. Because everybody deserves to have their story told and be written about, right. but we shouldn't fall into the trap of overrepresenting. But the that's not the issue. The issue is that most people diagnosed with gender dysphoria do not ultimately transition and are glad that they did not. But so the concern is pushing because we're more widely diagnosing this or more widely discussing it, and the concern that people feel is if we push more of these people who are just being captured by this softer category of gender confusion into harder medical interventions, but nobody, then you would have, but you have to much prove, more significant but regret. But then you have to prove that that is happening. And what you just described was an extant, like an existent reality in which people are increasingly accepted and diagnosed in this way, but aren't detransit. There's no, there's not concurrent evidence that people are also detransitioning at a higher rate and that they are being, quote unquote, pushed into medical inventions that are premature and irreversible. Well, then we're not disagreeing. So, we should. So, yeah, I, I just I want to make sure that we don't frame it in a way that presumes that there's a problem here that needs to be demonstrated by the folks who, again, are trying to have legal bans on people living their life the way that they want to live. And that's support, the issue I, here. Well, I don't support don't support legal bans. There is a, a the, the greater diagnosis of the, the sort of ge- of the gender dysphoria category, and I, I just I think it's perfectly fine, perfectly reasonable for there to be there should be a lot of conversations between families, children, and doctors, and then you know what it's your business, not mine, and that's fine. And I don't want to involve the government. We should just be a little little cautious about how we proceed. Um, because some people, some people do regret it, and my sense was if they're if they're more, if they would be more aggressively pushed, there'd be more regret on the other side. Well, the we the we again is family, so we we don't need to do anything but make sure that people have the right to live their life the way they want without the kind of bans that Republicans are advocating for across the country. But we'll have more rising for you right after this. Former Secretary of State Hillary Clinton gave these warnings looking ahead to 2024. Let's take a look. Right-wing extremists already have a plan to literally steal the next presidential election. And they're not making a secret of it. The right-wing controlled Supreme Court may be poised to rule on giving state legislatures, yes, you heard me that correctly, state legislatures the power to overturn presidential elections. Just think, if that happens, the 2024 presidential election could be decided not by the popular vote or even by the anachronistic electoral college, but by state legislatures, many of them Republican controlled. Wow, there was a lot of, uh, <laughs> a lot of interesting content there. The popular vote has never decided anything ever. I know she yeah. wishes it was the case yeah. because she won it. That would be a different system. We just don't have that system. Yeah, I think that claim is always weak when Democrats make it. Like, also, if the popular vote was 
was the determining factor, Republicans would run, run completely different campaigns. Right. I mean, I'm not saying they would necessarily, but also, it would be, you don't know, they would be very different, like, they would campaign yeah. in California. There's a, you yeah. know, 30 to 5, 40% of the of Californians are probably Republicans. Their votes don't matter. We don't yeah. focus on get, turning them out at all. Yeah. It would just be totally different. It would be different. And also, it's not as the Democrats between election seasons are, like, campaigning for election reform to try to make the, it a popular, a popular yeah. a bare majority system in the United States of America. So it just smells a lot like uh, tastes a lot rather yeah. like sour grapes. Also, state legislatures did. I'm not saying I'm not advocating for this, but they they were initially under the, under the original understanding, like largely responsible, right, for picking the electors. That's been reformed. I'm not saying we should go back to that. I don't actually think this. I mean, this. There's also so the Supreme good Court, news in the face oh, she's, she's of this very again. real threat. To she's democracy. talking. She, she heard us <laughs> making fun won. of her, and she, she's getting back in this conversation. Um, well, look, I, I I do think that. I want to ask you this about this other point that she's making about the vulnerability of the system as it's set up. I do think that sometimes, generally speaking, talking about Donald Trump stealing the election glosses over the call with um, Raffensperger, the Georgia Secretary of State, that Donald Trump called, um, claiming that he had won the election by hundreds of thousands of votes, which was not substantiated, insisting that the election results were wrong and that Mm -hmm. he not certify the election results in a world where that did happen, not just this kind of generalized claim of, oh, I should have won popular vote, whatever, that Trump did unsuccessfully try to influence the outcome of the election, not based on the Democratic outcomes, but on the influence with these individuals who are positioned at various places in the legislature and poised to actually affect the outcomes. Is there some truth to what she's saying, and should voters be concerned about it? I mean, they should be concerned about Trump. He was, that was deeply irresponsible, uh, so wrong what he did. He was rebuffed at every turn, um, including by the Supreme but, Court. I mean, the argument is that we have a different Supreme Court now, and that well, we also... one, two different people. It's very it. meaningful. And it, there's been a lot of coverage about how Alito in particular, his entire posture and affect apparently has changed now that he's in the majority in a way that people who have known him for a very long time, a law clerk went on the record in a New York, uh, New York Magazine uh, but his dissent was that ago. he would he would have heard a case the rest weren't even willing to hear. Not that he was necessarily inclined to agree with the but argument so, being presented. So, so the, the point is that there's a different, there's a more conservative, there's a different Supreme Court that maybe arguably feels empowered. Again, look at the Dobbs decision. But in addition, that Republicans have been playing this game and state legislatures on the ground. I don't mean game flippantly. I mean kind of smartly uh, positioning people so that the next time there is a, a Raffensperger call, it might go to someone who's a lot more sympathetic to what's being asked of him than Raffensperger actually was. Mm-hmm. And is that something that voters should be concerned about? They sh- yeah, it's, it's a concern if, like, at the local level, uh, uh, political figures are winning who, you know, want to cheat or change the mechanisms. Or do- yeah, that is a bad thing. But what happens if democracy gives you people who are bad and try to corrupt democracy? I mean, you just got to run and beat those candidates. I mean, this is, I was actually, you're right, Max Boot, who's not a figure I like very much, just tweeted, um, and I made fun of him, because this framing does become ridiculous. He said, if the current trends hold, Republicans are likely to take over House, quite possibly the Senate, along with many state offices. This is how democracies die, both at home and abroad. I'm like, well, democracies die by we having a democracy and then the wrong people getting into power. I mean, I guess. But what, can, what else can you do other than run well, against them what, and argue the things people, they're doing are wrong. What people I mean, do mean by democracy is the idea that there is direct representation. It's not how our democracy is structured, and maybe we should think about that. But it is not a popular vote in the way that 
districting mm -hmm. and gerrymandering has happened. And Rep Democrats try to do this too. Obviously, we just covered the story out of LA where there's all these internal fights over um, redistricting yeah. there and the power struggles there. But the reality is that it's so many places in this country, people feel disenfranchised not legally in terms of their ability to vote, but they don't feel like what is popular in the you, area is actually reflected in the people who are getting elected. You see the polls on, on how much people care about um, existential threats to democracy. You see you know, the mainstream media trying and failing to, to make that the thing people, the actual people are talking about and care about. So my advice probably would be, if you're really concerned about this, is to stop talking about it and you know, convince voters that whatever your party or your faction's agenda for, to make their lives better, to improve, to lower the prices of food and gas for them is good, and then also happen to have yeah. better views about democracy and elections. No, I right? hear that. The only point that I was trying to make is that they have to do that. That's the only, yeah. that's the only option, yeah. but that it is also a rigged uphill battle because Republicans did a much better job on the redistricting battles of 2010 than the, than, the, yeah. than the Democrats did. And so everything that they do now from here on out, even if they have perfect messaging and improve everything, it's still going to be not yeah. reflected exactly in the vote totals. But Trump's efforts lost in court over and over and over and over again were laughed out it's of court courts. at every level. Trump appointed more federal judges than. But, so, but a lot of those were people, people he appointed to. A lot of those were people he so, appointed sometimes, to. Sometimes it was. There but, were a lot of Trump appointed or Republican appointed um, judicial officials who, who laughed at the arguments he yeah. presented. With the, with the FBI search of Mar a Lago, there was a Trump appointed judge who ended up doing the right thing there and on and on and on. But at the end of the day, you know, the, the question is does some combination of the Supreme Court composition and the. Yeah the election of people who are not quite made of the same metal as a Raffensperger create a, a situation mm -hmm. on the on the fringes where we have a, a, a legitimately quote unquote stolen election and have Democrats like Hillary Clinton, who I think to some degree have been the boy who cried wolf through all of this, who have not, I think, done a good enough job of distinguishing what they mean when an election was stolen versus just being in their feelings about an election being right. stolen versus like real, real efforts to steal an election. When, People aren't going to pay attention to the real stuff. When, when the election is extremely close, there are, all, there are going to be opportunities to do some stuff. Um, either side can always win in a blowout by being super popular and delivering policies that make everybody really happy. That has happened in our lifetimes. Uh, Obama did it. Uh, Bush did it once. Yeah. Uh, it, can, it can happen again. Um, yeah, well, not if they keep thwarting progressives the way <laughs> progressive wow. populists the way that they do. I don't know. I don't know about that. Yeah, well, we'll have more rising for you right after this. Ted Cruz was front and center on the talk show The View, which aired Monday. Topics ran the gamut from inflation to the legitimacy of the 2020 election and even his attitude toward former President Donald Trump. Conservative host Anna Navarro pressed the Republican senator from Texas on his seemingly is seeming rather change of heart. I frankly don't know how you get over your wife being called ugly. I don't know how you get over those kind of calumnies against your father. But you obviously <laughs> have gotten over it. Today you sing a very different tune. So tell us, were you lying then or are you lying now? Yeah, that's, that's a loaded question there. <laughs> Look, it's an, me... it's an, I think a lot of people have the same question. It's a very different Ted Cruz that we're seeing. We are. I mean, would you not agree that that's very different Ted Cruz than, no, than today's what Ted I, Cruz? What I would say is this. In 2016, we had a primary where Donald Trump and I beat the living crap out of each other. I'll tell you, Heidi laughed when he said that. My father laughed. By the way, my dad didn't just kill Kennedy. He's got Jimmy Hoffa buried in the backyard. It was idiotic. <laughs> 
Cruz seemed to take the interview in stride as the host didn't pull any punches. Even members of the audience took the opportunity to heckle him. Uh, here's a bit more. It's the most money in history we've ever taken in. The problem is we spent nearly $7 trillion, and that's what's We do cover climate here, guys. Me. We do cover excuse climate. Excuse me. Ladies, ladies, excuse us. Let us do our job. Let us do our job. We hear what you have to say, but you got to go. Here's the thing. We may not like when Republicans win, but we don't go and we don't storm. We don't try to change, but we'll go did I miss an entire year of Antifa riots where cities across this country were Antifa burning and, and police cars well, were being yeah, firebombed? You Your position is the left doesn't engage in violence, really? So Joe Biden yeah. claims George W. Bush is illegitimate. We just said we don't scream at each other, right? Or, do, or, or is it just you that gets to okay. scream? Okay, no, no, I agree. Okay, I... then lower your voice because okay. we are very close. So right off the top, I got to say, the hecklers, I think, were heckling the panel for not talking about climate change enough. That was those were climate protesters, not Ted Cruz. Don't protesters. they have a painting to throw soup at or something? Yeah, they then I support them yeah. in doing that as well. But like, yeah. so that let's take that separate and apart from the Ted Cruz issue. Yeah. Um, what do you make of the back and forth about the the twenty twenty election being stolen, where 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 Ted Cruz says basically deflects from weighing in on the appropriateness of 1-6 and instead says, well, you guys support violence because well, and he they're does, Antifa He protesters. does the deflection that I see Republicans, uh, some Republicans do so much, where they say, yes, Joe Biden is the president. And they say, but do you think he won the election? And they say, mm, Joe Biden is the president. Right. It was just a kind of, you're not admitting that he won. You're kind of saying that he, like, Give in some kind of brute force way, he, you know. Stole it. Well, right. I guess that would be the implication if he didn't win legitimately. Uh, but, and, and, and we didn't play it. Whoopi does press him on that. But then she says that she thinks the other election was stolen. Yeah, this, this so then she just totally mess. loses the, well, it's, it's a segment of the view, of course. Well, well, look, it doesn't, I mean, it doesn't have she loses the way. moral high ground because then she says, suggests that there was something nefarious about the previous well, election. Well, they're, they're making staffing choices. Choices, and those staffing choices are creating these kind of yeah. segments. Um, I, I do appreciate that the addition of um, Alyssa there in the right the right seat. She did, I think, show grace in saying that she had to have a kind of reckoning. And you know, when Donald Trump was encouraging people to storm the Capitol and kill her former, you know, and attack her former right. boss. That, that was a come-to-Jesus moment for her. And frankly, she attracted some ire from the other liberals on the panel for, for even having that amount of grace. Whoopi Goldberg didn't. And she also didn't respond, I think, as well as she should have to Ted Cruz, which is to say, you don't have to like the George Floyd protest. The George Floyd protest happened prior to the election, and we're not about Democrats being bad about the outcome of an election. They were, they were a complete separate entity. So if the conversation is about what, what side steals the election or what side claims to have elections stolen, go ahead, talk about Hillary Clinton and Corinne Jean-Pierre having said that they thought that earlier elections, 2020, uh, 20, uh, the year 2000 mm -hmm. and 2016 were stolen. Make that argument. You don't get to say some other stuff happened over here that was Democrat aligned and therefore it was okay for Donald Trump to actively encourage people to go and storm the Capitol. You know, Okay, I agree with that. Yeah, they're not exactly equivalent things, or they weren't they're not over at all exact, equivalent. Things. They're not over equivalent issues, but but I mean, I okay, I do take his point that there was a lot of there was looting and rioting that has and nothing burning to do with election interference. By no, it has, has nothing, nothing to do with the election. So it's not by, I can sit here and well, say uh, conservatives killed you know eleven Jewish people at this Tree of Life synagogue. Republicans endorse violence. That's not fair either. The conversation is about election stealing and the fact that Republicans aren't willing to look. It's easy at this point. Say, look, there were 
there were moments at the, in the wake of the election where Donald Trump was making representations that confused a lot of the, Democrat, the, the Republican Party. We wanted to make sure that everything was handled accordingly before we conceded the race, given how important it is uh, presidential elections are. And now Donald, uh, now uh, Joe Biden is the president of the United States of America. You don't have to die on this hill, but they're choosing to die on this hill. The problem is that people like Whoopi Goldberg won't also make the concessions that's, that different kinds of statements have been made by people like Hillary Clinton in the past that muddle the issue and that we should be talking talking about specific event, events like Trump calling the Georgia Secretary of State to try to get him to not to certify the election and not use broad generalized terms like stolen stolen election. I make no excuses for January 6th, including the behavior of the people there, but I, I, I also not for people who set fires to things. Right, and I'm not for murdering right. a bunch of Jewish people in a synagogue, but well, none of these things are related to each other. Know, but the view got spicy on this episode, apparently not enough for Trump, who thought co-host of the one uh, of the show and the one-time communications director, Alyssa Farr Griffin, should have defended him more. Well, he took to his social media platform, Truth Social, to rant about Farrah Griffin, calling for her to be fired from the network. In his post, he said, quote, Alyssa Farah totally misrepresented her true feelings about me and the Trump administration in order to get her job at ratings disaster CNN and a seat with the low IQ people at The View. ABC hired Farrah Griffin to replace former co-host and also a Trump critic, uh, Megan McCain. Uh, Alyssa also uh, guest hosted or hosted Rising a few times uh, at one point. Um, yeah, but I, I think like she's made her feelings pretty clear that, yes, she obviously worked in the Trump White House. And also, it's weird to take the position that if you're an anti-Trump person, you should want the Trump White House and some to be staffed by people who are not like yes men, absolute right, absolutely devoted yes men, uh, and and that was I think characterizes Alyssa, and then and then she you know when it came to that horrific end where you just there was no way to continue to justify what was going on, she exited or she exited before that or, or it became more vocal about how uh, unconscionable it was and. That seems perfectly justified to me. I feel similarly. So. Yeah, I think that she's doing a good job in that chair. It's a hard seat to occupy. It is occupy a hard seat. I, to be I the, know the minority I'm on that. Friends with uh, Megan a little bit, and she, uh, she she had a lot of. I, I thought Megan did also did a actually really good job of representing um, a actual conservative point of view, and, and I mean she kept getting talked over and yelled at by the rest yeah, of Yeah, well, so much, much more so than um, Navarro, who I got to say is I mean, one of these Navarro's never Trump really, Republicans. Uh, she's not a Republican Who is there to make Democrats feel good, but doesn't actually re does reflect not represent the anyone. views of anybody does who's not Republican. Does not represent Republican. anyone at all. Right, so. right. Good on, good on uh, I guess, Ted Cruz for uh, giving it the old, the old college <laughs> try. Uh, it's hard. It is hard to be in an environment where you're, you're sitting at a table with like five other people and four of them are just yelling at you and the other is kind of actually politely and civilly trying to engage you and have some disagreements with you. So Yeah, well, I mean, best. They, they should inject a little balance to that table by getting a leftist, and you might see some ally. Farah might see an ally on the left. Brianna just seasons. always auditioning for, uh, for, for The View. Always uh, be close. I, I hope you make it, and then you can have me on, and then uh, we can continue this uh, epic feud. It's a deal. Tomorrow on Rising, we'll have more vigorous debate that you all love uh, so much, <laughs> as do we. As do we. <laughs> Be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who like to listen while on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts, and we're now available on Roku and other streaming platforms. Take care. We'll see you tomorrow. See ya. See ya.